everyone used to have a placenta, but most of us know nothing about this wonderful organ. Baby Magic is happy to present a mini-series all about the placenta. And today we're talking to Patricia Edmonds, a longtime midwife, who is going to explain what a placenta is, what it does, and what happens to it when a baby is born. So I'm very happy to have with me to speak about the placenta, Patricia. And uh, I always ask my people to introduce themselves. So would you mind introducing yourself for our listeners? You bet. I'm Patricia. I'm a traditional midwife serving in Oregon. And I have been a midwife since 1976. My service is exclusively home. And I have a particular interest in the placenta that blossomed about 20 years ago. And so my focus has been educating midwives and others who are interested about the functions of that organ. So important because I think so many people don't know very much about it at all. Quite true. Quite true. It's just discarded. Even in the medical profession, it is very disrespected. I have not seen anyone in those rare instances when we've had to transport to the hospital, any provider ever take a second look at the placenta. Wow. Um, so that seems bizarre to me, but probably not to many of our listeners who don't really know anything about the placenta. So can you just give us a little introduction to what is the placenta? How does it work? Well, the placenta is an interface between the growing baby and mom and is an organ of the baby. Um, it starts to develop as soon as conception and follows the growth of the baby throughout the pregnancy. It can impact the pregnancy if it's not formed well, if there are deficits because of nutrition, or if there are other things that are introduced into the pregnancy like disease states, viruses, and um, things that would influence how that placenta functions to assist the baby in growth to bring a baby to term. So basically it's in the uterus with the baby and connected um, uh, to the baby with the umbilical cord. Yes, so the, it's a fascinating structure in that it doesn't invade into the uterine wall unless there's an abnormality and it is almost a closed system where the placenta, the pancake or body of the placenta is connected to the bag of waters, which is similar to a water balloon and the baby floats in that um, fluid, in that amniotic fluid, which is created between the membranes and via the baby's urinary tract. And the umbilical cord is the interface between the placenta and the baby. So the it, the whole system is a closed system, and the uh, umbilical cord tissue is contiguous with baby, and that is in turn um, directly in contact with all of the other structures. So it's completely a structure of the baby as the baby grows with an interface that is very transient between mother and baby. So after the baby's born, walk us through what happens to the placenta. Well, if we're talking about the immediate effects of birth on the placenta and how that organ is then discarded, 
having done its purpose in sustaining the life of the baby, the uterus um, continues to contract until it shears the placenta off into the vaginal canal and then is then um, removed or discarded by the woman's body after the baby is born. The placenta is then theoretically um, checked to make sure that it doesn't have any egregious abnormalities that could affect the baby's life. Um, in the hospital setting, the cord is cut prior to the birth of the placenta almost exclusively before the blood volume that remains in the cord is allowed to transfuse into the baby. At home, the way that we serve, the cord is left intact unless there's a true need to sever that tie. And then we wait until the placenta itself is born before the cord is cut. So the entire package remains intact until, until the cord has emptied of all of its blood. And then the placenta is either buried or um, taken care of by the family in whatever fashion they choose to dispose of it. And if they don't have any plans for the placenta, I use it for teaching. So I will bring it home, take a lot of photographs of the placenta, which are then returned along with birth photos so that the woman has a chance to be able to see that organ. And then I have a placenta garden in my yard that is surrounded by a jasmine plant. And that's where I put all placentas that I don't use or that have been used for developing teaching protocols. And then it is buried there in the backyard. Although some of them do land in my freezer and all of my family members know that if it's a small plastic container with a red lid, it's not <laughs> anything not that they want to mess with. <laughs> yeah, I could tell you a tale of a cooked placenta once. Oh, oh dear. A, a I know. A mistake, right? Oh, truly. Oh, truly. <laughs> On the way to a birth, I was very much in a hurry and pulled out what I thought was um, consumable and chopped up the vegetables, put in the spices, plopped it into the slow cooker and left for the birth. Came home after the birth, realized as the cord floated to the top of the cooker <laughs> that it was a placenta. Yeah. <laughs> the entire package, all of it, went into the trash bin, and I have not used the slow cooker again since. Well, um, at least you discovered it before your family. Amen. <laughs> and the family still doesn't know. I'd be just a little bit too embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, you 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 talked about cutting the cord after the yes. the placenta is born. What are, what are alternatives to cutting the cord? I'm particularly not thinking of um, people that don't want the cord cut for whatever reason. I'm thinking of the, um, the spread of disease in, in places where we don't necessarily have sterile equipment. Um, oh, you bet. Yeah. So, so what would you suggest some alternatives to actual, actually cutting the cord? Well, the only alternative to cutting the cord is what we now call lotus birth, where the placenta is left intact, the cord is remains uncut and is still attached to the baby until the cord naturally atrophies and falls away from the umbilicus. So the cord actually falls away by a process of dry gangrene, which is pretty fascinating considering the fact that it's limited to the very 
the very end of where it embeds into the baby's abdominal cavity. So the gangrene doesn't go anywhere beyond just the, the stump of the cord. Once that process is, has finished and it dries away and the um, blood vessels are sealed and begin that process of becoming ligaments in the baby's abdominal cavity, then the whole placenta can then be discarded and there's no separation whatsoever between the placenta and the baby until it falls away naturally. And it has, go ahead. No, no, I'll save my question for after. Okay, so it has been a practice for forever. I can't imagine that our ancestors were too preoccupied with the idea of cutting the cord before the babies had the chance to take more than a few breaths. Um, being able to sever that cord safely has been something that's been a new construct of the medical profession. A lot of the things that our ancestors did have been completely obliterated because the medical profession deems them unsafe. I think that leaving everything intact is a wise way to go. Makes sure that the blood that needs to be balanced and into the baby's body is allowed to flow between the cord and the placenta and into the baby's body. There's a balance that happens when the cord is not cut where the baby will uptake the blood volume that it needs, but no more. So we may see a placenta and a cord that look very pale and very drained. Other placentas still look very infused with blood and the cord does not completely um, pale out, but that balance has already been met and the baby doesn't need any more blood. So you see those differences in the placentas um, if they're left alone following the birth. I first got interested in lotus birth when I was uh, looking at the, the, the numbers of uh, newborn tetanus in places where um, people had, basically Western people had gone in and taught yes. traditional birth attendants to cut the cord, but obviously without any method of sterilizing whatever you're cutting it with, you know, you're going to spread tetanus when you do Absolutely. that. It's like Nestle introducing baby formula into a culture that can't afford milk. And so babies starve to death in the midst of abundance because women's breasts have been devalued to the point where they're more inclined to give a baby artificial food in a plastic bottle and then not being able to sustain that. So it's the same with premature ligation or cutting of the cord. It can be left intact and there doesn't need to be any violence between the baby and its placenta. Um, and that is accomplished by using whatever tools you have. So I've often wondered how our ancestors handled all of that. And we have evidence of things like obsidian or bamboo, um, different methods of being able to separate the baby from the placenta. And the difficulty, of course, is being able to substantiate how far back lotus birth went and exactly what that looked like in indigenous cultures. Absolutely, because those are the stories and the traditions and customs that have been um, buried, really. Very because, much so. Because they had to do just with women and with, uh, with childbirth. Yes. I have had a long-standing fascination with diaries with women in our past 
most particularly those diaries of midwives. And they are few and far between because birth was so much an intrinsic part of day-to-day -day life that there wasn't a particular emphasis on whether or not um, a particular woman was a midwife. Uh, she didn't do prenatal care. She didn't have a relationship with many of the families she served because in a, in a birth relationship, because she lived in the community. She knew about a woman who was pregnant, but wouldn't know anything, any more details about that with the exception of um, what happens in the community itself. So those different traditions, including traditions with placentas are lost because it wasn't important because it was so every day. It was very important, but it wasn't emphasized because it was so much an intrinsic part of everyday life. That's so interesting. Well, I think now we should start keeping diaries, that's for sure. Absolutely. I have been keeping a birth record book for 45 years now, and it is far more clinical than what I would like. It just keeps the statistics with a little bit of the birth tale because I'm not much of a writer. But I would encourage everyone to keep the record because that's the only way that the traditions of home birth and the way that women are cared for outside of the institutional setting will ever be honored. So, and the other thing is to look for those diaries, try and find the tales that women wrote um, that were brought forward and have been published as a way to be able to have some kind of insight as to how our ancestress is served. Absolutely. So my biggest curiosity has always been, what did she carry in her bag? What did she take yeah. to birds? Yeah. yeah, what did she, you know, what did she have? Right. She's yeah. on a horse. She's been fetched by someone in the community. She walks yeah. to someone's, another village. But what did she have in her satchel? So, Patricia, answer me this then. What would you have? What would I have in my satchel? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I would have... Um, I always approach a birth from a spiritual aspect first. So as soon as I hear that I have been called to a woman's service, I offer prayer because that is my connection with a power that is higher than me that supersedes any of the medical profession's wizardry. Um, and if I were to be limited, and I, I really am quite limited because I have broken ties with licensure because it wasn't serving the families that I was asked to care for well at all. So what I carry to a birth is very minimal. Most of it is comfort measures. So lots of herbs, lots of homeopathics, um, the basic tools that none of our ancestors has had. So I've got the blood pressure cuff, the fetoscope, the, the Doppler, those kinds of things. Um, but if I had nothing else to carry into an, a woman's birth, if there was nothing else available, I would just carry in wisdom, just experience. Because basically, under most circumstances, birth unfolds with little or no need for interference from the outside at all. So I try to just be there to bear witness, but also as a guardian so that if something isn't going along smoothly, I can offer her alternatives or if there's a need for an emergency transport, then I have the ability to be able to be that transition transition between home and hospital and keep it safe. 
I always used to uh, tell my 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 doula students because I, I taught uh, I taught doulas for many years, and I always mm -hmm. used to teach them: sit on your hands. Don't don't ask yes. what you can do. Just sit on your hands and be a witness. And I, I sorry, I discovered that the that the 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 doulas of of mine that um, that attended a lot of the the volunteer births um, for my volunteer organization. The ones that had, you know, after years had attended 50 to 60 to 100 births as doulas sitting on their hands and being witnesses, they got into midwifery school and became really good midwives because it's not our birth. Exactly. Exactly. I have a, um, I had a year of training as a midwifery student when I was pregnant with my son. He was my midterm, um, and I supplemented that after I finished with my schooling with a program called Apprentice Academics, and the woman who ran that program said, mouth shut, eyes closed, and ears open. Basically, that was the gist of it. So don't speak unless there's a need to speak. You're there to observe and to absorb what's happening. The only way to know what normal is, is to be quiet enough to be able to listen to it and smell it and hear it until it becomes an intrinsic part of the way you can serve. It's amazing what our senses can give us above and beyond what happens between a pen and a piece of paper. So I think just keeping our mouths shut, um, not adding anything to the story because like you say, it's not our story. That's wonderful advice for all of you would be and uh, and starting out and practicing both companions out there. Eyes shut, mouth shut, ears open. You can hear it. You can smell it. You can you can you can intuitively know what's going on. And I think that that's one of the things that the matriarchy has to offer is being intuitive again. I'm often asked when I'm lucky enough to be able to teach, um, to teach classes on intuition. And I have this deep chuckle inside of me because it is not anything that can be taught. It is either present or not present in a conscious way. So we're all deeply intuitive in so many parts of our lives above and beyond birth it's learning how to respect intuition and to trust it and i think the hardest part of intuition is untangling what is true intuition and what is projected so i don't think that um if i live to be 102 i will ever clear clearly have a concept of what intuition truly is and be able to pull apart politics, emotions, fear, all of that, and just be clearly, truly intuitive. But it's what I strive for. Me too. And I think one of the deepest enemies of intuition is fear, for me anyway. It really is. And I think if nothing else, the conundrum that the entire world has gotten itself into right at our present moment has been 
a deep-seated push to ingrain in the human race fear and dependence on authority. The intuition has been buried deeper and deeper, and um, the fear has been heightened to the point where the entire world is on the precipice all the time. And I think that what we need to do is make sure that we pull back and separate all that fear out from the birth room and make sure that there is nothing that we bring into the birth room that would feed any kind of fear. I do find it interesting that when I have a complicated birth, if there's a difficulty that's can't come up, that I carry that fear with me to the next few births. If I've had a difficult birth with a bleed or a shoulder dystocia or something has happened during a birth, my fear awareness is heightened regarding that particular twist or turn. And I have to be consciously aware to drop it at the door and not to bring any of my baggage into her birth. Yeah, it's so important. When I worked as a as a doula, I've, I've worked in, in many, as I've worn many different hats in the birth world. And for yes. many years, I worked as a doula in hospitals here. And I would know if something had happened because um, the medical staff would be particularly cautious about something or other let's say they had a shoulder a serious shoulder dystocia then they would be completely paranoid if it looked like you know the 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 baby's shoulders might be a little bit sticky and and I would I would know because obviously that like there just wasn't that consciousness in the hospitals so it's so interesting and we also obviously we we do that we carry it through we really do we really do I wrote a piece after a particularly difficult birth Um, that kind of has remained my personal mantra about the fact that we cannot carry women at all, that this isn't our birth, it's not our story. We're called into her birthing space to bear witness to her journey. And we certainly must be aware of the responsibility, since she's asked us to be a care provider, of being able to give care. But we can't do that for them. And if we put ourselves in a place where we are called upon to rescue women instead of bearing witness, we get ourselves into trouble because we do too much. Yes. We can't go in like the like the knight in shining armor. Absolutely not. And um, those cases where we're, we're expected to, um, they they those people that that might might expect that um, need to do a lot of work. They really do. And I think that um, it's like the question that comes up so often when I'm working with young students and trying to help women decide whether or not birth work is a calling or a fantasy for these for them. And it can be either. I try to make sure that they understand that if they're taking clients because they want numbers and they're not allowing themselves to be very discriminating about who they actually serve, then they're going to get themselves into trouble with being overly cautious and too intrusive in the woman's care. Um, I think that childbirth education is something that has to happen at each visit 
therefore my visits sometimes last two or three hours because we talk about everything, everything in detail. Um, you don't get childbirth education sitting in a group of people um, and having someone lecture you. You get prenatal education by having questions answered immediately in, in the immediate time when that topic comes up, as opposed to just being dictated to by someone else. Yeah. So I, I just really think that we need to be aware that if you've been called to be a midwife, most particularly if you've been asked to serve at home, your role has become one of deep servitude to this family. You have to balance deep servitude with a family with sacrificing your family as well, though. And it's easy to get so lost in caring for someone else that you neglect your own personal life. Yeah, it's definitely a balance. It's it's a hard one to keep sometimes. Yeah. So I want to pull the conversation back to placenta. Yes. Because you haven't spoken to us yet about eating the placenta, which has a lovely uh, name. Can you? Placentaphasia. It is a very, it's a very new um, concept in, if we stop to look at numbers and what is happening with placenta encapsulators actually becoming a profession. And so when I first started here, started to hear about it, I jumped into it just like I did with water birth. You know, I was, I was repulsed by water birth. I couldn't believe that a baby could hold its breath that long. The foolish notion that the cord um, was the lifeline. And it, it was fascinating watching my personal growth with regard to placenta phasia or encapsulation as I began to question its veracity and do more research about exactly what the whole process was. And so, although it is a very popular thing to do these days, and people are getting um, great reward financially for encapsulating placentas, I pulled back in favor of looking at why. Why are we doing this? Why are we all of a sudden, even in midwifery circles, resorting back to allopathic methods of healing, such as giving a woman a pill, rather than enriching interpersonal relationship to take care of the issues that the placenta encapsulation is supposed to cure? That is such an interesting argument thank you so much you've made me think for sure and and i'm i hope you've made other people think because we're talking mostly about two things um uh preventing and and healing postpartum depression and uh increasing the production of breast milk both of which if the if there's a healthy mother and a healthy birth and and a healthy community can be fed so much better with community than, than as you say, with, with a pill. It's quite true. When we look about uh, those two things in particular are touted as benefits of consuming the baby's organ. So what we have to look at is physiologically, this has nothing to do with the mother. 
you're basically consuming your baby's body in an altered form. And we need to take a look at whether or not there is anything, any veracity whatsoever to a highly altered organ um, that is the baby's organ being consumed by the mother or in some instances being fed to strangers for cures or even made into a mother tincture and given back to the baby so the baby is consuming its own body. So most hemorrhages, um, it's only about seven to eight percent of any particular pregnancy or birth that's going to end in, end in what is considered a hemorrhage. So if we assume that your body is accumulating about 60 percent, 30 to 60 percent more blood volume during the pregnancy, and you're accumulating interstitial fluids in your body in the form of some hand or foot swelling that is outside of anything that has to do with preeclampsia, those fluids are there to be able to infuse back into the woman's body to compensate for blood loss. So if we assume that taking a desiccated capsule days after a bleed is going to restore a woman who is anemic, I think we need to double take, do a double take and try and figure out exactly what the mechanism of that could be. So the postpartum depression element is, is just exactly the same. What we don't recognize with postpartum depression is that it is not, under most circumstances, a pathology. Postpartum psychosis is a completely different thing and should never be treated by a layperson and certainly can't be touched by encapsulated placenta. But postpartum depression in and of itself needs to be honored as a shift from prenatal hormones to postpartum hormones that are best facilitated by putting the woman to bed and honoring her postpartum period with her baby, allowing uninterrupted bonding, uninterrupted nursing, and not interfering by saying this is an abnormality because she's feeling blue. So how do we feed postpartum woman who's experiencing depression? It starts prenatally. And we have the gift of being able to have a view into a woman's life that is far more intimate than anyone in most professions. So we can see what the relationship is between the woman and her partner any children in the family? Is there any antagonism or fear that's radiating from in-laws or from her parents or her culture? Is her culture supportive of what she's choosing for this baby's birth? So we start that whole reconciliation between her emotional state and her pregnant state prenatally. When it comes to the birth, if she can own it, she's far less likely to feel that massive disruption that happens under most circumstances with birth in our culture or lack of culture. So the baby's born, baby's separated, baby's bathed, which disrupts um, the hormones that exude from a baby's head that help with bonding. Um, and some people are even postulating that keeping the baby's head uncovered and being able to make that, that olfactory connection with a baby can help contract the uterus and can help to prevent hemorrhaging or at least mitigate it. That's one that I have to study to kind of see if I can pull apart whether or not there's veracity in that. 
But after the baby's born, if you presume that she is she is ill and you give her a pill, which is an allopathic medicine, which is geared toward masking the problem instead of feeding her, making sure that she is well covered, that the baby is um, not separated from her and you honor her by taking care of children, preparing a meal, spending two hours with your, your families for a postpartum visit rather than just doing the perfunctory clinical data collection that we typically do. So if we stop pathologizing things and recognize that it's a hormonal shift, you don't get, need to give her a pill to make that transition. Well, thank you for that. That 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 is very very interesting, and I I love your approach. Um, one one other small question: We often hear yes. that eating a small piece of the placenta can stop postpartum hemorrhage in the moment. Have you ever seen this happen? And would you would you recommend it? You know, I think that it's one of those things that we're trying to figure out. How does this hormonal cocktail work? And since the placenta is rich in oxytocin and theoretically can push those hormones directly into a woman's bloodstream, as opposed to desiccating an organ that's going to be given to her later, um, I think that there's probably some veracity in that. The difficulty is all of the information that we have is anecdotal because nobody's studied it because you, I just can't even imagine an obstetrician or anyone who would do any kind of research um, doing that in the labor and delivery rooms. So what we have are observations by midwives who have used this as a way to be able to boost a woman's hormonal balance to be able to mitigate or to strengthen contractions and mitigate bleeding. I have never seen it not work, but I've only used it a few times because we don't see those hemorrhages very frequently and also we have this psychological thing where for some reason our culture thinks it's okay to desiccate a, a placenta and feed it back to a woman for days and days and days on end but giving a woman an infusion of raw placenta is repulsive so i think that it's something that needs to be observed more and that we need to have midwives have a repository of that wisdom to be able to look at it clinically so that we can have more awareness of exactly how all of that works. I don't doubt that it doesn't that it does not work. I just don't see it often enough to be able to give you a definitive answer from my point of view. But I'd far prefer that to um, that long term use of a dried placenta. Well, thank you. You've been really informative and incredibly inspiring. I'm going to ask you my final question that I ask all of my the people that come on the show. If you have yes. one word to spread to the world today, what would it be? Wow, one word. Talk about encapsulation. <laughs> one it's word. poetry. It's not encapsulation. It's, it's just yeah. poetry. Exactly. One word that I would give to faith, just just faith. We have to get back to trusting it again. 
Thank you for that. I'm hearing so many lovely words. Every every person that has come on the show pretty much has given me just so many beautiful words. I think I'm going to have to indeed make a poem of just the words. Well, when you do, I'll put it into a calligraphic piece for you. Well, okay, we're, we have a deal. <laughs> Thank you. Sounds good. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was lovely. Thank you very much for honoring um, all of us that are trying to provide a higher quality of care to families across the planet. I hope you enjoyed that fantastic introduction to an amazing part of our birthing voyages. Patricia joined me for part one of our placenta mini-series. Join us next week for part two, all about lotus birth. I'll be speaking to two women who had lotus births. One had a home birth and one had a baby in the hospital. Find out how it's done. I can tell you a secret. Love, grace, and knowledge are three important tools. <laughs>